Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Welcome back to the Interdependence Podcast. This week, we're thrilled to welcome the author Hugh Lemmy in celebration of his new novel, Unknown Language, written in collaboration with Hildegard von Bingen and out now on Ignata Books. We discuss what it's like to channel the dead and write a novel together, Hildegard's visions and genius, constructed languages, and bad gaze, Hugh's wonderful podcast with the historian Ben Miller. We felt like we could have talked with you forever, as he's a fountain of interesting knowledge. Thanks again for the support, and have a wonderful week. Bring, bring, bring. Hi, Hi Hugh. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm very good, thank you. <laughs> and where are you? I'm in Barcelona, which is where I live. Yeah. yeah. Sunny Barcelona, wonderful. yeah. Wonderful. So before we bru- uh, brutalize the biography, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Uh, yeah, my name is Hugh Lemmy. Uh, I'm a writer. Um, I write novels mainly and also a bit of criticism and um, essay, an essay, a weekly essay series. And I also um, co-host a podcast with Ben Miller, which is called Bad Gaze. Which I love, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad. actually tempted. I'm tempted to buy the T-shirt, but I don't know if I can wear it out in public. It's, one of these. it's like kind of a big call, you know. It's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. We also live in a gay neighborhood, so I don't, yeah, it's, it's don't true. know how it would go it's, down. It's it's true, actually. Yeah, I don't know. It could 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 kind could of go, go either way. Could go either way. Yeah, you just might get hit on a lot more. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the hope. I mean, I, I I won't lie. There are certain streets I do walk down um, for my self confidence. <laughs> 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 Oh, God, there's so much to cover with your kind of like cultural output. But I think today we're going to primarily focus on your most recent book called Unknown Language. And also, we would love to dive into the podcast a little bit because I think they're related. Yeah, yeah I, I would think so. Yeah, exactly. So so Unknown Language, which is I'm going to I'm going to kind of butcher this because it's a very interesting book in the sense of how it's been written. Right. You've co-authored this book with Hildegard von Bingen, who... And also two other authors as well, Well, right? two other authors contributed to right. it, but the but the main text, um, the main text is is you channeling Hildegard. How did this come about? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about the genesis story of this project, just period. Well, it was a commissioned piece, which is, um, I've never done before, um, a sort of a commissioned novel where someone comes to you with the idea and asks you to write it, but I'm, I'm quite comfortable with that way of writing. Um, so professionally on the side, I do quite a lot of ghost writing and things like that. Oh wow, I would love to hear more about that eventually as well. <laughs> well, the chan- the channeling, the channeling of a spirit and ghost writing. Okay, yeah, we need to get That's into that. Really interesting. Imme- okay, uh, with haste, but yes, we'll get okay, back to that. please carry on. <laughs> yeah, so um, so the publishers, um, Ignota Books, uh, which is run by um, these two great people, Sarah Shin and Ben Vickers, they came to me a couple of years ago and said they wanted to publish a book about Hildegard which sort of takes her visions um because Hild- so Hildegard von Bingen was a was a a nun in the 11th uh, 11th and 12th centuries uh, many 12th century and she she had a series of visions throughout her life um which she had a scribe to write them down and she became 
increasingly powerful in the Catholic Church, but also she has this like vaguely heretical aspect implicit in her writings. They're quite challenging for the Catholic Church, but she was never deemed a heretic. Um, so she the and and the the visions are amazing, and they have a, a sort of internal cosmology around um, this notion of greenness, which calls um, veriditas, which is uh, yeah, so, sort of part of this whole um, theology, which in the 1970s sort of re-emerged with the environmental movement because it's very much a sort of early form of ecology. And she was this fascinating woman, uh, a very an early composer. I think she's the first named composer of music um, in the Western canon. Uh, she invented her own unknown language, uh, uh, which has never really been translated and no one really knows what it was for. She was a, a prolific writer on medicine um, and healthcare. Um, so yeah, just this, this absolutely fascinating woman uh, who became uh, the abbess of her own uh, of her own nunnery. So, but her her writing is quite dense. It's, it's like it doesn't have a narrative form as we understand it, and it's written in these ways uh, where where she channels God, um, and so she's mm-hmm. writing, and and she switches between these voices quite a lot of which is hers and which is God, but but it's also quite dense because. There's a lot of explication. She'll she'll describe the vision, and then she'll describe the the uh, symbology of the vision. And then she'll describe the sort of meaning of the symbology. So, so it's not necessarily an easy read to get go through her work. And so they wanted someone to sort of produce a narrative or a novel form based on her work um, and her visions, which would go some way to sort of making it more accessible or more um, more readable or interesting for for a modern audience, I guess. So they, they, they provided me with um, uh, her books and a whole list of potential visions that they'd like to include and aspects of her cosmology and her, her work on um, stones and rocks and also on healthcare that she was involved in. And, and then they sort of let me get to it, really. So I had to sort of read through her stuff. And, and, and very early on, it became clear that, that there's, there's an aspect to her work which is... Um, uh, very oh the words just slip my mind um eschatological you know like there's like the, the, there's implicit almost a millenarian aspect that there's an implicit understanding of like it heading towards the end of the world and a lot of her her sort of theology is derived from the sibylline prophecies uh, which were very popular in europe at the time and it's like sort of the basis of a lot of our understanding and read like our reading now of revelation and the end of the world Mm-hmm. So, so I knew that I wanted to include this idea of the end of the world, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the basic plot of the book is uh, what happens if the 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 day of judgment comes and it takes longer than a day to administer. What would the earth look like if God had to Im- implement some sort of regime, some sort of political regime? And so, so Hildegard in the book is a um, a doctor who works for the public health um, authority of this city, and the end of the world comes and she decides what she has to do and her process of sort of escape from the city, which is as well as being a um, a physical escape is also a sort of uh, mental and spiritual escape from the world that she grew up in. Um, so, yeah, so, so they came to me with those ideas and I sort of put them together in, in this way to, to hopefully make a more compelling narrative that, that touches and explains some of her ideas, um, but within a more sort of engaging form, perhaps. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, in the book itself, there's this really strange sense of time because I guess you're kind of channeling Hildegard and also in the, the opening piece by... Uh, Bonnie Capil. Exactly. That piece felt like it was kind of written in the past, present, and future in a very kind of unusual collapse of time. What What was the role of... Yeah, how were you approaching this kind of sense of time or like being in the world when you were writing this? Yeah, I mean, Banu's um, story is is in some ways a sort of um, a foundation story on which the other story then rests. It's 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 the rediscovery of these texts. So these texts are sort of a paratext within, like my my, my story, which is also the story of Hildegard, is a sort of paratext that is discovered um, mm-hmm. by the character within within Banu's story, mm-hmm. um, which I think is like a really interesting framing device anyway to. Mm-hmm. to work on and and so that's clearly set in the future in a, in a sort of post-corona uh world mm-hmm. um rediscovering my text but I see. The, okay. the world i yeah the world i wanted to set it in i wanted to um to touch to, to, to develop a sort of imaginary city like a, a lived environment which collapses the medieval and the modern which for me was like the most enjoyable part of writing the book is that reimagining what what this sort of world would be like Mm -hmm. which actually isn't so hard I I think it's too easy to um to ignore or or just brush past like how much of the world we live in is the remnants of worlds that have been lost which is something Mm -hmm. I want to sort of touch on in the main story is that actually we survive the end of the world all the time we live in especially living in sort sort of cities like Barcelona you live in a world where there has already experienced a, a world-ending plague for mm-hmm. you know, in its yeah. way, for example, where like methods of understanding uh, within like a spiritual or within a, a human context, um, what it means to to experience a catastrophic loss within your civilization or destruction. So so walking around the city, I real I was sort of looking around and thinking like, well, we already live in this world where, yeah, we live in these, like plenty of people in the city live in sort of medieval buildings or or early modern buildings and yet they still have their smartphones but then they still i don't know like all sorts of infrastructure is is these you know the, the street plan for example is like this re- uh, remnant of these previous worlds previous lives that are lived and they're not they're not what we we don't each generation doesn't rebuild the streets they they inhabit right. like a lived world from the past so i wanted to create sort of imaginatively that world um for her to live in um but then there are aspects of sort of the infrastructure that we have discarded which in this world i bring back so so hopefully it touches upon everything from a sort of middle medieval era to a modern era and all the eras along the way uh, aspects of those lives that are still sort of still lived and and then brings in ones that you know like don't exist anymore but you know what would it be like if we still did have a a function of the state, which was sort of very um, early 20th century, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah, I, f- I felt like that was really successful in the writing. It, it kind of, in a, in a very different, using a different kind of method, it reminded me a bit of the Russian film, It's Hard to Be a God. Have you seen that film? No, but this is the one that they built a huge sort of city set for it, right? Oh, no, that's a different one. Oh, okay. Equally that's, fascinating. That's Dare, which is, yeah, very, <laughs> oh, yeah, very yeah, yeah. fascinating. No, so Hard to Be a God, it, it was originally a book by it wasn't lem it's some other classic like, sci-fi classic can... like russian science fiction uh, uh i think they were brothers I'm, I'm spacing on that maybe i'll i'll, I'll overdub the name in so i seem more clever <laughs> um but it was basically a book in which um a bunch of scientists 
um, go to a world. They discover another planet that yeah. has a similar kind of ecosystem to Earth, but is on an entirely different time frame. So you have kind of um, astronauts from today discover another Earth that hasn't gone through the Enlightenment. Exactly. And so it's basically like a medieval society there. And it's it's just so visceral and disgusting. There's so much like snot and poop and mud. <laughs> <Yeah>. and it's <laughs> like- <laughs> it's an, well, there's two films that, that I believe it might have been, a, I can't remember if it was an East German or West German production. But there was, it was a, yeah, there was a kind of one. like a German production in the seventies, which you can stream for free online. That one's more like a rock opera. Kind it's of. incredible. <laughs> it's like it's kind of like the Dark Crystal or something, um, with like spandex and like crazy hairdos and like a. It, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. Right, but um, I prefer the Russian one because yeah, yeah. it really captured. I mean, it's just a constant gross out, and it's like six hours long or something, and you're just like bombarded with like, no, this would be the reality of this kind of life. Exactly. In a way. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, that sounds super good. Yeah. Well <laughs> I think also like sometimes within I mean, for example, within the book I, I sort of had I mean her her vision of the world, her cosmology and her medicine is is super materially um obviously she's writing about her understanding of the world that she lives in. So to translate some of those into like a more modern context and for them to be understandable and not to seem like anachronism so you have to make an entire world which is partly anachronistic right for to, to make it yeah to make her her reactions to things make sense within that world which i think was part of it but also like i'm someone who like thinks a lot about um or i daydream a lot about sort of, sort of about history when i'm in the in a lot of spaces i guess um you know like mm. I, as a kid i uh, as we used to go on school trips to this place which was like a it's called beamish it's like a living museum for the victorian and edwardian era and I, I, I find that that thing so compelling, you know, the way some people find, I don't know, like model villages and scale compelling. I find that sort of like mm-hmm. historical scale compelling as well. Like it's, I find, yeah, it's just, it's really, I find that really fascinating and really imaginatively productive to be around those sort of ideas. It's spaces. true. And it, 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 it made me think of a couple of things, actually, when you were saying that it's funny, yesterday, we had a really nice day, which is quite, quite rare during <laughs> lockdown, actually. But it was, the, it was German Unification Day. Um, and so everyone was in a strangely good yeah, mood, which was yeah, kind of really rare strange. In good mood. And we were we were going on these walks, and actually, I was we were walking through aspects. And it's funny that you you raised this idea of kind of like historical infrastructure or like the ley lines of you know of of civilization. Um, uh, uh, and it, it occurred to me also like the role of churches in that, which of course, when you're talking about uh, Hildegard and and abbeys and and monasteries, etc., how in a sense. You know, it, it make, brings to mind, you know, uh, recently you were in a conversation with uh, this building in Amsterdam, which is oh, the, the Udekerk. The Udekerk. Are you familiar with this building? Yeah, I know of it, yeah. Which allegedly was like the first building in Amsterdam. Well, it's the, I think it's the oldest surviving building because, you know, Amsterdam had a huge fire. Oh. So it's the, mo- it's the earliest surviving building. Of course. But then, but you have these kind of like these focal points. That's it's beautiful. There's a cat meowing in the background. <laughs> he's all right. I've not like let, locked him out. He's just like he's 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 just no. Um, it's really cute. It's really nice. Drama scene. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, but you have the you have these buildings that were of course were focal points um, uh, in terms of the establishment of these of these civilizations, right? Where where all roads would lead in some senses uh, to these places of of common worship or whatnot. Um, and so you find yourself, we were somewhere off in like the West, somewhere near like Wilmersdorf or something. And we're walking past this church. And I was like, oh, actually, like this helps you to orient yourself in the city so much better in a way that I'm not normally on that wavelength. I think if you live next to a church and it's ringing every hour, you're yeah, really, it's, it's true. You're hyper aware um, of it. And the other thing that, that occurred to me, have you ever been to the, the, the Square of Three Cultures in Mexico City? Uh, no, I've never been to Mexico. Oh, I, I mean, for what you're describing, it's like one of the most 
striking experiences because basically they have this square rock like rock in the center of mexico city and it's called the the place of three cultures because it's a recognition of like three separate periods of mexican history so you have like the pre-columbian history the spanish colonial history and the more recent kind of independent history but you can see all of it so as a result of the way the architecture has been uh, uh, uh been built there's this crazy like time gradient it's really nuts it's mm. really really incredible but but also i think incredible as well there were also like there were there were there was student violence that happened there the police had assassinated some students i mean it's like this site. yeah there's like a revolutionary square there's like yeah. modernist buildings there and then it kind of goes further underground and you see more and more kind of um yeah archaeological sites and like you know sacrificial sites it's just a really um oh literally under the ground you can sort of yeah yeah, yeah i yeah, love that yeah right there it's really beautiful but it, but it's beautiful in the sense as well because it it does kind of engender this it's a deliberate decision to frame the city and particularly this very, very prominent square in the city as a place situated in history or situated within multiple histories, which feels like a very bold kind of statement. And it feels as, as well, like in, in, in encountering it, it also feels incredibly modern and quite futuristic actually to have adopted this approach, right? Like you have this kind of like wide view of, where you are situated over thousands of years or whatever it's it's a, it's a remarkable remarkable place yeah it's it's very up your alley uh, uh if you're if yeah, you're ever in, that, right in alley, yeah. that neck of the woods yeah it puts things into perspective yeah it's yeah. gorgeous i mean really gorgeous yeah they have a they have a thing here which is this um these markets that were built in the uh, late 19th early 20th century um which are these sort of vast covered markets really beautiful um and some mm-hmm. are still markets really popular there's one near me called san anthony they're sort of food markets for local people and they, there was one in um, this neighborhood called, called El Barn, which is like near the center. And the market was built upon, well, basically when, uh, when the um, the Spanish sort of conquered uh, Barcelona um, in the War of Spanish Secession, they they knocked down this whole area, this whole neighborhood of, of Barcelona to build a, a new citadel in order to sort of suppress the local population, I guess. Hmm. And then the, later, a couple of hundred years later, they built this market there. And then at the end of the Franco era, the market became a sort of site for sort of political organization in some ways, you know, sort of early early gay rights demos and things there. And then they were going to renovate it. And as they were renovating it to turn it sort of into a, a proper formal cultural center, um, they dug down to the, the, the basement and uh, to the, the foundations and found that it was built on top of a still existing medieval street plan. Wow. So they've just uh, left the excavations completely uncovered. Uh, so you sort of walk in and then you sort of you're looking down on onto this medieval street plan, that's, and you can go and walk around it as well, take the guided tours wow. around it. Really amazing, but it's the same, yeah, exactly that sort of sensation where you realise uh, we're people living on top of people living on top of people. And so, in terms of the of the writing of the book, I mean, I know obviously I I don't know I don't actually know uh, uh, Sarah, but I but I've I've known Ben for some time and. And I'm familiar with uh, with Ignota's kind of efforts to kind of bring in, I don't know how you would describe it, but it's like, I'm brutalizing this by saying kind of like a spiritual dimension, or there's kind of like a spirit a, a, a spiritual practice dimension to the goal of the publishing house. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, I think it's, I think it's sort of um, a mixture of sort of esoteric and hermetic philosophy, I guess, would be a go. way to describe it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hermetic is way better. Um, but so in terms of writing this book and channeling uh, Hildegard, I mean, first off, is this something that uh, would fit into a practice you would normally do? 
or you would you were normally familiar with where you where you sought out to channel Hildegard for a specific reason and if not what kind of routines did you have to put yourself through in order to channel Hildegard I'm just I'm interested in what this process is because obviously it's quite a diff- different it, it's quite unique yeah well my other books my other novels were like they, they were very different to write but I think there's some similarities in terms of first of all writing out like massive social change and upheaval and and that sort of change with a sort of um, psychological or psychotropic or or weird uh, set of circumstances, weird experiences that lead into like political change, um, which I think is why they asked me in the first place. But also because both my previous books riff quite strongly upon like imaginary worlds created by other people, whether that's a sort of form of fan fiction or in my last book, I sort of the the, the conceit behind the book was taking taking at their word um, the sort of tabloid and commentary um opponents of of the left in the uk and specifically of jeremy corbyn and say like well if what if the world they were describing is true what if momentum are a sort of raging group of um marxist thugs <laughs> and, and and what if jeremy corbyn is a maoist you know what would it what would, what would the world look like um so in, in a way i'm used to sort of approaching writing in somebody else's voice perhaps or through somebody else's creative uh, manners so but but in this one, it's like a very different proposition. So when I was started to read the book, I, I realized I had to get myself quite a lot more mental space, a lot of more peace. Um, I, I sort of read the book a lot outside, went to these sort of parks and um, read long, long chunks at a time and tried to sort of incorporate or think about that that sort of um, her spiritual dimension because the world that she lived in, her, the creative world that she lived in was so different. You know, she was, um, she was partnered with an anchoress for about, 10 or 15 years of her early life basically her teenage years she spent locked in a room with one other woman who was only slightly older than her Mm -hmm. so so yeah like to understand and like uh, approach or come to terms with her the world the the, the mental world that she was in when she was writing was was like a, a lot more of a challenge um but I found when I was reading it there were a lot of aspects of like I'm not a catholic um I'm far from it in fact but there were a lot of aspects of the world, her, her understanding of the world through silence that were very familiar to me because I was raised as a Quaker. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I found a lot of similarities and a lot of, a lot, also a lot of aspects in the way that she was approaching the idea of what grace were, was felt very familiar to me. Whether I interpreted it right or, you know, I'm sure Catherine, theolo- Catholic theologians or Catholic doctrine would take a very different approach to it to, to me, but I didn't worry about that so much. And then secondly, I was reading this uh, amazing, amazing book, one of the most interesting books I've ever re- uh, read, which is called The Pursuit of the Millennium uh, by Norman Cohn, which is about um, heresy, um, millenarianism and sort of anarchist mill- millenarianism in the medieval era. Mm. And I sort of got this impression... Um, of the Catholic Church as, as being constantly under threat from from heresy, what well, what they would call heresy, but it's actually, I guess, like a spiritual cha- spiritual challenges to, to the understanding of the relationship between people and God, mm-hmm. um, and that she was part of that same tradition, and that the Catholic Church evolved the, um, through through challenges from its own believers. Mm-hmm. whether inside or outside and at some point it became too much it couldn't be brought back in but you know so much of catholic theology regarding for example saints or marianism or things like this were were popular beliefs that were understood that had to be brought into the church otherwise they'd be too dangerous they'd, they'd destroy it from the outside mm, this sort of idea wow. of better to have them inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in no so so and i, I saw her within this and, and and almost by sheer luck that she became 
she went to Bernard of Clairvaux, who was um, kind of a terrible person, uh, like a cheerleader of the Crusades, um, and a- approached mm-hmm. and said, these are my visions. This is, this is what I've been experiencing since I was a child. Are they valid, essentially? And by, by I don't know how, but for some reason he decided they were. And as a result, I think we wouldn't know about her otherwise because most of her visions were written down after this period when she had a scribe. Mm-hmm. And she maybe she'd just been burnt or locked away forever. We'd never have known these, these sort of ideas that she had. So I found that very, um, when I was sort of appro- approaching writing a lot, a lot about her theological ideas, I sort of tried to think about it within that framework, that these things are, uh, although they were taken on by the Catholic Church, still remain in some ways a challenge to a lot of those ideas. They, they still have a sort of um, quite radical radical aspects to them. So I tried to sort of incorporate that within my own, I guess, religious upbringing. She was deeply pragmatic in a lot of ways, right? Like her early visions are kind of, you know, maybe what... Be- what got her her kind of um, political freedom in some ways to a certain degree. And then she kind of later used her visions to, yeah, to convince uh, kind of more powerful figures to, uh, you know, do certain things like, you know, certain political acts that she was kind of hoping for, she would kind of see in a vision. Um, right. More Machiavellian visions. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's why I was, I was stumbling around this a little bit. How do you see the kind of like evolution of her visions? And yeah, tell us a little bit more about her visions, because I feel like they might have even like changed over time. And Because initially they start at right. My very basic understanding of this is that she started to receive visions very young and at some point had to petition the Catholic Church to pursue them further or to write them down or something because as you said that there is this real danger that because of some of the heretical potential of what she was seeing well she could have been burned she could have been burned or dismissed but it appears that she was entertained as you just as you just described so yeah what what were some of what were some of the dangerous uh visions she was having early on but it also sounds like she knew kind of how to work the system because instead of just (laughs) being like i have these visions you have to listen to me she's like i'm going to go through all of the proper steps and i'm going to kind of work my way up (laughs) yeah yeah and i think again like uh not to be well yes in fact i will be cynical about it like there there were some of her later visions were extremely politically convenient yeah (laughs) (laughs) but I think, I mean, the other thing to really understand about her, which you, yeah, you, I mean, you can't grasp anything about her and where she's coming from without, without knowing is that she suffered sickness, like very profound sickness throughout her life. Uh-huh. And so um, her first approach towards the authorities was based around the fact that she, she, when she denied these visions, when she refused to talk about them, when she was um, locked away um, in, with, the, with uh, Yuta, the anchoress, who was her close friend and confidant, without manifesting and putting them down as she saw them revealing god's word god god was speaking directly to her and she had to sort of take that message out she fell into like quite profound sickness throughout her life um and there's there's some very interesting sort of discussions in the 20th century about like the nature of that sickness there's a really really interesting essay by oliver sacks the the neurologist um where he discusses whether she possibly was suffering from a very extreme form of migraine because a lot of her visions Mm -hmm. Uh, the way she describes them and their relationship with light are quite similar to the way that people in the 20th century and 19th century discussed migraines. So, so like a, mm. a sort of a, a very strong light that appeared to sort of pierce or sever the, the hemispheres of the brain in the way that she mm. understood the world. And she saw two things simultaneously, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of halos were important within her visions. Mm-hmm. So, so that's sick. I mean, whether you can go back and say people in the 
early medieval period suffered migraines in the same way you know like our understanding of sickness is contextualized by the medical profession anyway so mm-hmm. um but yeah so yeah so i think that's like a really important thing and then throughout her life she was taking she took to her bed quite frequently um whilst having these visions and then they were relieved when she managed to sort of get them written down the question was about the politics of it though right yeah well wh- wh- how like what was what were the content of her visions like what was what what was what was so dangerous about her early visions that she needed to seek permission to to pursue oh, right. well as a as a like as a woman to have direct revealed uh, a direct revealed relationship with god is like inherently dangerous i guess i mean still mm-hmm. today for anyone in some in some ways if if the authorities don't perceive those 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 visions to be genuine um so just the very ne- like the very nature of having visions in the first place and then secondly um they they're based very strongly around this idea of veriditas and the interconnectedness of stuff so so she's having like a visions which in this sort of pre pre-enlightenment era around like the nature of god's relationship with nature and humans and how humans and nature should interact which is a which is a political issue in i guess in those in that era and the put very very simply sort of um boulderizing a little bit her visions the the idea of veriditas is that is the interconnected nature of everything for the form of worship that that god uh has created a nature that everything has an inter interlocking relationship which the point of which is to sustain worship it is in fact existence is in fact a form of worship of god that god has produced for himself mm-hmm. uh of which humans are has to be said sort of the, the pinnacle of the pyramid um because they're the ones who can verbalize prayer, prayer, I suppose, and uh, and music, which is a, a a key part of what she was sort of saying. And then also within her visions, you know, like there's a lot of um, morality, sexual morality, things like this. And kind of like the human almost as a microcosm for the greater cosmos, right? Like the whole world being contained within a single individual. So, yeah, yeah. So she, in a way, she's kind of like an early metaphysical philosopher. I mean, is she kind of seen through that lens? I don't really know. I have to say, despite talking about this, I've obviously read her books, but I'm not in any way a philosopher or be a theologian or even a Hildegard expert. I'm just a writer, but um, <laughs> who's who's interpreting this in a, in, in a way that I'm sure I'm sure um, people who are experts will find lots of problems with in some ways, right. um, which I don't I don't apologise for. Have a problem with, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, uh, yeah. I guess I guess, I don't know I don't know whether she's understood in that context now. I see. But uh, at the time, she was hugely significant. She wasn't, this wasn't something that she was sort of just talking about to her fellow nuns. Um, one of the reasons, one of the things that makes it so interesting is that women were prohibited from preaching at this time. But she sort of got around this prohibition by not preaching, but simply explaining her visions to groups of people. So she traveled quite extensively mm. around um, around what would become Germany in time. Um, and then eventually when she set up her own convent, um, they were themselves quite uh, radical or quite... They were at an angle to the church, I guess. Um, and she frequently came into political conflict with the church. I mean, one of the big ones is that she, that someone was buried in the, the local church that she was under her authority, and then it would later turned out that he'd been excommunicated, and she refused to have him exhumed, as, as was demanded by the church authorities. Hmm. And this went on. She was banned from uh, singing, from 
But wait, the rest of the story is she uh, she removed all the headstones so they couldn't exhume him, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> she just, <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine these nuns going out in the middle of the night and, yeah, pulling all the headstones. But then she, um, and then she, she was banned from performing music um, and prayer in the, in, no, I think just performing music. And that's, and then she suffered this other sickness at this point, which again, seems like a convenient sickness to have and a revelation <laughs> about it. But she won in the end, you know? Right. And, and but that was just before she died. And then she, yeah. And, so, and she was, she, a lot of her stuff that she was writing, her, her music that she was writing was also these sort of morality plays, uh, like basically very early versions of probably opera. Mm. So not only the first composer, but also the first diva. <laughs> <laughs> Overtaken by sickness. That's Although really ima- imagine, yeah, imagine telling Hildegard von Bingen that they couldn't perform. It's like such a crazy <laughs> right. cell phone. Well, I mean, I find I find it really fascinating how she was really able to kind of embed her agenda into these kind of visions and really kind of work the system and make it like make the kind of changes that she wanted to see in the world. I mean, you know, she also kind of claimed that god um consists of both the feminine and the masculine and this kind of balance right and that that was super controversial at the time and that you know really tried to center the virgin mary into religious life which also you know had profound impacts on the role of women in the church and kind of you know so like seeing things in, in its kind of time context of course it was still like a deeply you know misogynist society but she was kind of making these incremental and one thing i don't know because i'm just a, i'm this this is one of those topics where I feel like I'm I'm yeah I really am in the kind of the the bleachers. But are any of these ideas still and in fact in you reviving um, some of these visions through through your interpretation? Is any of the stuff still controversial within the church? I mean, is there a is there an ecclesiastical dimension to this even today, or is this kind of just accepted? Well, she was canonized. She was canonized. That means. Yeah, yeah, she was canonized, and she's also. Uh, she, I think she, I think I'm right in saying that she was the first female doctor of the church, which wow. is a very uh, limited wow. number of people. Yeah, and this is kind of pre-university, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess around the time of the foundations of the maybe the first university, but yeah, kind of pre-university. Yeah, and she was really a polymath. Like the the, the extent of which she, she studied and wrote about these different things. Um, her books on medicine are like, I mean, they're they're early early sort of medieval medicine, but um, they're, they're they're holistic. They're, they're they're expansive you know it's not just a few ideas on medicine it's like a, a whole understanding of the world and attempt to put down a, a, a sort of a way of yeah like a, a knowledge of folk medicine at the time that was yeah really expansive and there would have been very few environments where a woman would have been able to pursue this i mean you know i don't want to question her kind of like devotion to god but you know like this also in in terms of kind of pragmatism i mean if she had chosen kind of or I guess she didn't really choose. If it had been chosen for her any other kind of path, she probably wouldn't have been able to, um, yeah, realize her kind of vast intellectual capabilities. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I, I find um, I find the role of, mo- like, learning more about the role of monasteries and nunneries at that time as well as this sort of um, hot house for weirdos, I guess. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's where you put your your third son or your fourth son, or in her case, I think she was the eighth child, uh, as was given as a tithe to God to the um, to, to the monastery um, at a very young age. I think, well, I mean, they don't, they don't really know, but sort of maybe about eight or nine, she was given to the monastery and she, then she was put in, spent her entire teenage years basically um, with, with the anchoress. Um, but um i've discussed this some before like i I don't know how this would hold up as a historic as a historically evidenced idea but the idea that um that there's something 
you know, you have your first child who is the one who's going to inherit everything. And then you have the second who probably goes into the military and then the third goes to the church. But this idea that there's, it, it's a place where you put the odd, the odd kids, the odd balls mm-hmm. at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like the gay ones, but essentially there's a sort of, there's like a, a it's like a queer space in some ways, mm-hmm. um, which while I think is on dubious historical ground it's to some extent there's also some sort of like interesting historical things to do with you know like during the reformation uh, and the, the birth of protestantism um henry the eighth for example introduced the first state law on uh buggery uh the same year that he began the dissolution of the monasteries and the idea is that there was a sort of popular understanding that monks were sort of licentious and potentially sort of yeah sexually sinning sodomites at the time anyway that was sort of understood and you could motivate that sort of popular feeling around or understanding of monks in a sort of political direction anyway i mean yeah i think that is extreme like on quite thin historical ground but i think there's something interesting about it like like that the these in these sort of very intense same-sex environments where um where you you have like which which hold a monopoly on learning and mm-hmm. certain aspects of culture as well. Yeah, that's wild. That sounds like that sounds like a worthy book. Most likely, quite a controversial one. But yeah, it's a because obviously the, that the, that kind of specter hasn't really left uh, hasn't really left the church, right? Yeah, and also, I mean, that hasn't left the church. Uh, yeah, and but also, I mean, the the same the, the Knights Templar, you know, the suppression of the suppression of religious orders and organizations was frequently done. On the accusation of um, sexual immorality, it's usually usually sodomy. Hmm. Well, what didn't Hildegard write some of the first kind of texts around the female orgasm? And it's kind of questionable, or there was kind of a question mark around if she experienced this herself or if she's writing from hearsay. And do you know very much about her sexual life? Um, no, al- almost nothing, except for the fact mm-hmm. that her descriptions of sex and her descriptions of female anatomy and um her understanding of it i mean bet seem seem odd for a nun should we say that <laughs> like her, 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 she yeah she said to have the first um the first written description of the female orgasm from a woman's point of view mm-hmm. and yeah um so and and that sort of aspect is something that i wanted to bring up in the book which is again unevidenced but based upon her writings around women and her writings around sex yeah i sort of wanted to include something of that quite queer understanding yeah and and also i mean through the sheer exercise of channeling it also feels like an important opportunity to even though as you say like the historical evidencing of this stuff is quite difficult and i'm sure there are a gajillion texts uh, uh out there but like it's also kind of an opportunity to try and read some of the subtext in these writings when quite clearly at the time you know she was having to uh uh you know, having to navigate a very serious political situation in what she was writing. Right? Well, she also wrote that she had a vision and she wrote to the higher ups that uh, a very particular young female nun companion should definitely not be moved to another monastery because yeah. <laughs> God did not want that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, you, you can't, you can't transcribe modern sexual identities backwards at all. You know, like, uh, heterosexuality, homosexuality didn't exist before the 19th century. Some you say a lot on on the podcast, um, but at the same time, in terms of like making her uh, her readings of 
her relationships between other women legible and understandable in, in a sort of modern framework and to try and implement some of that idea of her discovering herself and her own uh, bodily her own bodily understanding of her spirituality shall we say because you know that's that's the, the key part of her regarding her illness is that she understand understood her spiritual dimension through quite clearly through her body which is something very lacking i think today mm-hmm. um that 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 also doesn't have to like i didn't want that to be an entirely negative aspect i didn't want it just to be around her sickness i also wanted there to be this aspect of like discovering her body in relationship mm-hmm. to other people as part of this interconnected gift of grace which she she sort of talks about so yeah it's um it, it has no uh, clear historical basis but hopefully in, that's part of my sort of um poetic license in 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 making her a rounded figure whose spiritual journey is sort of legible to us today mm-hmm you you've used this word grace a couple times and I really I really appreciate that you're using it because I also grew up in a um in a religious family and the the idea the concept of grace was a very um kind of central theme so can you talk a little bit about how her understanding of grace and your own understanding of grace growing up did you say what was Quaker yeah Quaker yeah yeah can you just talk about that concept of grace and how they kind of intersected and maybe also how they differed um i know that's a big question because <laughs> it's like saying faith or something yeah yeah um i guess my understanding of it both relating to her and my own upbringing would be something to do with the space produced to allow god's love slash will to manifest mm-hmm. which within quakerism is based around this idea of quietism uh that silence uh, and the space for silence is the space in which um, we can come to a closer understanding of our relationship with God. Okay. I didn't realize that that was such an integral part of Quakerism. So is it a kind of meditation or? No. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> although today, like a lot of people, I think a lot of people who convert convert to Quakerism do understand it as a meditation. I'm sure I'm sure there are sort of shared aspects of it, but theologically uh-huh. it's definitely not uh okay. a form of meditation as I understand it. It's a form it's a form of worship that allows the space for God to manifest his I mean Quakerism is essentially a mystic religion. Everyone has a direct relationship with God who communicates directly in that in that space of silence that is created. Right. Mm. Um so but but it's not meditation. You can't have a Quaker meeting on your own. It's always it's always a community. Oh. It has to happen. Quaker meetings are always a community of people. Does uh, that mean that Quakers don't pray alone, or is that considered in a different category? Um, well, first of all, it's very difficult to say Quakers do or don't do anything. It's okay. I think categorically, it's actually not really a a church so much as a. I think it's regarded as like a sect or a cult because there's no creed. Okay. They don't believe in a Nicene creed particularly. Okay. I mean, some do. Some some would say they don't even believe in Jesus. Um, although oh, that's wow. that's quite on the edge of Quakerism, uh, uh, especially in the U.S. and the rest of the world. You know, there's there's, there's different forms. There's a, the Quakerism in America has very different forms, and Quakerism in uh, is also in America is very big, much part of like an evangelical process um, and a missionary process in Africa. And in that that form, is quite conservative, and it definitely does believe in. They definitely do believe in. In Jesus, so 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 a lot of Quakers, I think, would probably say they don't pray; they just go to meetings for worship. Um, okay. But obviously, others do, and it is possible to pray. But worship itself happens in, as a collective, in as as a collective practice, and and it happens in silence. Meeting for worship is a silent worship. Um, 
But if anybody feels moved by God to speak or moved by the light, depending on how you word it, a lot of Quakers use this term, the light, uh, which uh -huh. is sort of interchangeable with certain ideas of God. But when the, the, the inner light moves you to speak, people do get up and talk and stuff. But there's no programmed worship within British Quakerism, which is like a big part of it. So, and there's no, there's, it's anti-sacerdotal, there's no priesthood, there's no, uh, there's no formal spiritual hierarchy. So how is it to kind of revisit this piece of your, uh, your upbringing through, through learning about Hildegard's work and kind of life? And I don't know, is, is it a kind of fraught because you said, you said you're not religious now, is it a kind of fraught relationship or... I don't, say, I don't think I said I'm not religious now. I think I said I'm not Catholic. I'm not Catholic. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Sorry, sorry. I don't want to um, put words in your mouth. <laughs> I don't know. I, um, although, actually, in, in all... Oh, no, I'm not religious now, but I'm also not a sort of atheist or anti-theist either. And I'm, okay. Um, I don't have that, that sort of surety of my belief in it either way. But, right. but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it was very interesting for me to revisit it because, um, because I was brought up quite deeply in it my parents were wardens of a quaker meeting house so for the first eight years of my life i li literally lived in a quaker meeting house oh um, wow yeah and a very old one it was from 1725 so you know less than 100 years since the fo the formation of the of the religion of the the religious society as it's called wow um, the official title for it is the religious society of friends which i think is quite nice quakers is just a was originally a a sort of slur on members of the society and wait where did you grow up again i grew up in um in cumbria um the religion sort of started in like north lancashire which at the time was part of which was cumbria um it's a county in the very north of it northwest of england on the border of scotland um and actually the way it's very bureaucratic <laughs> bureaucratic organization or religion um and you have this sort of organization into weekly meetings and monthly meetings and then yearly meetings which have two aspects one of which is a meeting for worship and the other is a meeting for business um but anyway, so we had monthly meetings um, at the Quaker Meeting House. So I used to go to a different Quaker Meeting House every week, which my grandfather was um, an elder of. And then once a month or quarterly, they'd come to the to to, um, to where we lived. But the thing is, uh, yeah, it was it's where the religion sort of started. You know, like our monthly meeting, organisationally, our monthly meeting was um, was Swarthmore, which was uh, Swarthmore Hall is kind of where the where the religion started, where George Fox was when he started preaching so so you were surrounded i was surrounded growing up by like his very historical sense of a religion mm -hmm. um living in the same buildings and you know like i'd go to swarthmore hall and do things there and i was like you know like i mean he's not a prophet but essentially you're sort of going to worship at it in the place where where the religion started where the, where he started to preach so it's uh, mm -hmm. crazy um so, so you're, there's there's like a, some kindred spirit spirituality between you and Hildegard, I think, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, and I think so. And then I, I guess, and as a teenager, I was sort of involved in stuff a little bit like that. But I sort of, yeah, I guess I moved away from it. Although members of my, some members of my family still do, do, do go to worship. No, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to move on a little bit because one thing that I think is quite, quite interesting about this process, and I was speaking to you before we started recording, um, is this idea that, you know, even though in a sense, um, the book, you're dealing with this idea of uh, channeling people from a, an isolated position, we're talking about like a hermetic history of being kind of locked up from other people. Um, and you're also obviously in, given uh, Hildegard's um, personal history, 
you know, dealing with this kind of ambient feeling of malady or sickness. Um, it's strange in a way that all of this was done before lockdown. Um, and I wonder, yeah, I mean, how in going into lockdown and, and as I understand it, um, in Barcelona lockdown was, has been a very, very serious, um, a serious kind of, um, uh, a serious and observant, uh, uh, process, how is this you know, how has this process uh or or the the process of writing the book changed in your mind since then or or i mean would it have been in some ways interesting to have written this book while undergoing lockdown yeah um yeah it was it's a strange coincidence because you had finished the, like the main i mean i'd finished writing the first draft of the book well before lockdown started and so i was just in the process of sort of going through the edits i think during lockdown and um and sort of tinkering and yeah, so it's a real coincidence, given like that the start of the book is based around a city in lockdown, to then have gone like <laughs> gone through it myself, gone through it myself. Prophetic. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, no. I guess one thing that was sort of strange, strange about it is that you become within like a sort of sort of living within like a neoliberal society, more or less. I mean, not, obviously not totally in Spain, but within a conception of yourself that is like very much based around like this personal autonomy and personal identity and choice and things like this. Mm-hmm. Mm. So when we start to go down to lockdown, you realize that for all the talk about the sort of collapse of uh, a certain type of national community and also the state, like the, the, the role of the state, when push comes to shove, when it comes down to like the actual core functions of the state in terms of policing and control, it's all still there, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, it's very, and and if you're not subject to it, as I'm not, as a sort of, you know, cisgender white person, a writer, you know, reasonably well off, it's very easy to sort of skirt, like to, to, to not let yourself think too deeply about it or to, to start thinking down different tracks, maybe mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. from that. And then when it came, came to it and they're like, okay, now you can't leave your house. You can leave your house once a week and go shopping or go to the pharmacy. That's it. They can do it. They, you know, that's still, that's still like very much like a, a function of it, which which when I was writing about this, like imposition of this regime, uh, looking back on it seems, seems like, yeah, like very, very pertinent to that, you know, like mm-hmm. twice my boyfriend left the house to like, we live right next to a, a sort of park on the hill and he was, he was going to work actually, or he was trying to get to work where he, this other space, the other side of the mountain. And he was mm-hmm. you know walking through a sort of deserted area. And both times he tried it, the, he, he got stopped by the police and served for notice, et cetera, et cetera. So, oh, wow. um, so it was very, very strict here. Um, and and then yeah, I guess I would. I wish I could have written it afterwards. I think it would have had some certain different tones in understanding, like the effect of being locked away, the effect of like your relationship with like a, a heavy-handed state presence um, that can do that. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. but it is it is definitely still all there. And then the other thing I think that's very interesting living in this city as well is like the way that when you have a transference of uh, like a transition of power between different regimes that the institutions of power are largely unaffected um which when you think back towards the catholic church and the, the evolution of the catholic church as being a sort of hollowing away of the sort of political some of the political power of the roman empire and, and that the church the catholic church is essentially just a continuation of the roman empire under a different name with different mm-hmm. emphasis but you know it's, a, it's the same functions and then living here seeing that and then just yesterday i went to um and we had, it was like a nice day. We went out for a walk, and the city organises these sort of self-guided walking tours, uh, like a little little map on their website you can load on your smartphone, based around twentieth century history. And one of the places we visited was a 
uh, a convent that in the Civil War was used by anarchists as a prison. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And uh, which I think is like just a fascinating contradiction, which is obviously like not a contradiction really when it comes to like <laughs> uh, state power. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we sort of snuck down into the into the basements, which is where the cells had been. And the door was just open. We just went sort of went in and... Um, and it's a convent again, or it's a church, in fact, again. It's like a, it's like a parochial, a parochial centre, like a parish sort of centre. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was completely empty. But at the end of this sort of long corridor, which had previously been the cells, there was just a guy like practising his guitar, singing this song mm-hmm. in Catalan about liberty. It was this like very sort wow. of... Wow. Yeah, this like this dark hallway of former cells and there's like one man at the end just playing guitar, singing about liberty. It was like really, really intense. But you're like, okay, this is the same... Um, obviously, like the, the political regimes, are, like super different, but that um, that's kind of like something I want to think I tried to tackle at the start of the book is this idea of um, the transference between this sort of fascist political regime and then the sort of uh, the religious regime that sort of replaced it. It is true. It's like it, it, on multiple levels, right? It's like as you said, the the you know the ability for latent state powers, or at least perceptually latent state powers, to all of a sudden kick into gear was definitely something that that we became aware of and then also to go back to this veriditas principle right just this idea of homeostasis or some kind of like balance of power between uh human created systems and natural systems right is also just like i mean here to stay i i wonder i wonder you know how our perception post vaccine or whatever the 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 you know the 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 short term uh, solutions to this to this particular crisis uh, might be like how much that will endure, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, the, my understanding is like, I guess so much discussion that we have around the switch in Europe from a sort of social democratic uh, polity towards a neoliberal one is based around the collapsing of state functions and 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 this resurgence sort of idea of like in, individual responsibility and power and. Um, that it can be too easy to too easy to forget when you're a subject within that rather than outside of that that actually um this that the, the ha- there hasn't been a collapse of state power like the the, the, the regimes of state power are, com- uh, are bigger than ever the, the pl- in terms of policing and borders and migration like the state still exists it's just a hollowing out of um the sort of social democratic safety nets around it and the, and, yeah, exactly. and the things mm-hmm. built with by a certain type of civil society without it and actually all you're left with at the end is yes a whole bunch of like functioning neoliberal individual subjects but still within this colossal um authoritarian regime it's just not an authoritarian regime that necessarily has to um produce state culture that is um tackling collectivist challenges to it because it's already just destroyed the collectivist challenges and the lesson to come out of come out of it in terms of the 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 current crisis is is the the just vital importance of renewing or rebuilding or reimagining um collectivist projects that are outside of the state but that are social yeah, no, it's true. It's like, yeah, like the minimum viable state is punitive, right? Like, <laughs> like the minimum viable, viable state is like police and a border, as you put it. And then, and then, yeah. yeah, you've got all these other potential functions of a state that have just been eviscerated over time. Um, 
Yeah, it's also funny too because it's like it, it brings to mind, of course, that you know that within like an American context, and of course, there's like traces of this within Europe too. But this kind of like uh, libertarian individual uh, uh, mindset that's kind of existed as as a subculture for a really long period of time of right like stockpiling uh, stockpiling supplies for the end of the world with your guns or whatever, and how also kind of impotent that approach toward. No, um, but it also reminds <clears> me of this conversation we were having earlier at the beginning um, where we're talking about how the kind of architecture of a city reveals past ideologies. And it's something that we've been noticing. We've been watching a couple of documentaries on East on the DDR and things like that. And seeing some of the kind of like physical manifestations of what in some people's eyes could be considered a kind of utopian project, the DDR, even though it was, of course, turned into like an authoritarian fail state. In some aspects, it was a kind of utopia project of kind of like um, equity. Um, But yeah, just to see the kind of remnants of those ideologies as kind of, um, yeah, structures all over the city is a reminder. In fact, um, I don't know, do you know the writing of um, Anna Zett? Anna Zett? Yeah. That name rings a bell. No, no. how do you spell that? Uh, Z-E-T-T. Okay. Um, but uh, as someone who was raised in the DDR, writing about, um, yeah, the legacies, like the psychological as well as physical f- physical re- re- legacies of that. And Absolutely. as a as a position of someone who is, uh, yeah, I guess, neither a cheerleader for the sort of Western capitalist states, nor the, nor the DDR, and looking quite frankly at, at, at what, it, what it means to have been raised in that. I think it's very interesting. Right. Yeah, it's pretty wild. No, it's, it's cool. I've... Uh... This is a total aside that I'll probably cut out, but I've been trying to learn German. So my way to like try and learn German is to like attempt to watch things that might maintain my interest for a period of time. And so it turns out there's like hundreds of documentaries about the transition period from the DDR to you know, being subsumed into West Germany. But the one we watched yesterday <clears throat> was really good. What was it called? The one about the um, Schriftsteller, the, uh, uh, the author... Yeah, actually, I'd recommend it. I can send it to you. I can't remember what it's called. It's basically (laughs) about how, like, the kind of, like, elite um, uh, 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 script writers, what's that? Screenwriters, playwrights. Playwrights, playwrights, that's the word. Playwrights in uh, around the Volksbühne and, like, really important theaters in um, Germany were all informants, essentially, on each other, Mm. kind of, you know, without a lot of choice, but kind of the conflict in um yeah the internal conflict there because on the one side that they kind of had to comply to be able to get their works published and on the other hand some people really did believe in the kind of utopian project of the ddr and on the other hand they're informing on each other and it's just well it fits also into the kind of machiavellian thing uh, we were talking about with with hildegard in a sense because the film's remarkable because it follows you know like a, a an old east german poet and playwright who is relatively well known in those circles um and basically is telling his life story and then meeting up with all like his lovers, who's like an opera singer. Mm-hmm. Um, the the old... he informed on. She was well, that was the thing. And, <laughs> and then bringing out all these documents, uh, uh, you know, 40, 30, 40 years later and being like, oh yeah, by the way, your boyfriend was talking to the Stasi the whole time. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. Um, I can't imagine the effect I must have had on people's interpersonal relationships afterwards, you know, like this oh, yeah. the anxiety and a sense of distrust. It's awful, but well, it, in, in a similar way to the, the, what you've described of uh, Anna Zett is, you know, he talks about how the the DDR lives on in people's um, imagination still, that it's not something that just kind of like dissolves when the state dissolves. And that's, you can just see that in his kind of personhood in a way. Yeah. And you see it emerge. I mean, even with the, the this is, this is probably too insider baseball right now, <laughs> but like the protests around like the Volksbrunner itself, oh, yeah. you know, this idea of like what a functioning 
what a functioning theater with this kind of great history and significance means to a city like Berlin. Well, this that is, was crazy, though. I mean, like, sure, whatever. Anyway, but yeah, but but, but it, it does it does live on. Um, it does live on. I wonder, is there anything? Uh, uh, is there anything you feel we're missing from the book that you'd like to discuss before we move on to talk to you about your great podcast? Um, no, I think you've covered in in depth. Yeah, it's been more interesting. Yeah, the most interesting interview I've had of it so far. So yeah. Oh, that, I'm really, really happy because honestly, we're, we're with this one. It was like we also just received the book a couple days ago, so yeah, we're like, ah, trying I, to get like read as much as possible. And of course, and and the obvious, like the the one of the more the more interesting kind of um, uh, or one of the most like softball dimensions there is of course just this like heavenly music that was produced. Where yeah. like I only know of Hildegard because basically since I've been with Holly, I've heard Hildegard playing from <laughs> playing from her room. We also didn't talk about Hildegard von Blinging. I don't know if you're familiar with this woman. No. Oh, it's amazing. I, so I'm 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 so I'm I'm again like outing myself as a complete novice here. But of course, the first thing I did when when you agreed to the interview is go on YouTube and search hildegard von bingen to get the uh 10 minute debrief or whatever from the bbc or whatever it is that i might and the first thing that came up was hildegard von blingen who is a young woman who has an insanely popular youtube channel and a patreon etc where she just sings hildegard songs really really beautifully mm. um yeah anyway but it's like nice. a really really popular uh thing you know i might have i might have heard about it, i just i don't think i knew the name the one thing i did want to bring up actually because it obviously it also speaks to the ignota books framing is this idea of the unknown language right the, the lingua ignota that can we maybe dedicate like five minutes to that because sure. i'm just curious i'm i'm particularly i'm very curious about constructed languages just generally um we actually had I'd imagine probably a common friend, uh, Jay Springett, on the podcast recently. Oh, yeah. Uh, who was talking about um, how Enya released numerous albums uh, singing in Locrian. Locrian? 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 Which is a, a constructed language produced by, a, I believe, a Northern Irish poet. Yeah, but but this idea of of producing your own language for certain uh, for certain functions that obviously inspired the name of the publishing house, and I wonder, like, what can you tell me more about that? I mean, I know that we don't know necessarily what the intended function of the language might be, but is there any is there anything more more there? Um, I I know very little about it other than that she didn't write her visions in it, which seems okay important. You know that she her visions written in Latin with a scribe, a male scribe actually. And she she oversaw the production of the codexes of in which the visions were produced, um, and I think had some influence over the illustrations as well, which are also amazing and and bizarre and beautiful. Um, but in terms of the language, um, the only thing that I've really read about it is that they they assume it was it was actually for communication between nuns within her nunnery, which I love that. which it's to so me cool. strikes me as yeah like ripe with amazing opportunities and possible stories you know like what is she, what are they talking so she's like about a, they need she's into crypto yeah she's a cryptographer <laughs> um which yeah which is which is a big part of um ignota as well the, the other side of the what they publish as well they published uh, the white paper for example on blockchain like bitcoin yeah, yeah bitcoin. right yeah. cool do um, you know anything about the language polari I was just yes. to, yeah. So our friend Colin Self is right. He's like been commissioned to write something for it's like Beethoven's death anniversary. So Germany's freaking out and commissioning all this <laughs> kind of crazy stuff. And so Colin's writing a choral piece for I think like a giant choir here, the Rundfunk or uh, choir, and he's having them sing in Polari. So Amazing. can you tell us? Apparently, a little, yeah. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about it? 
Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, I think I was probably around, uh, like, like I want on TV, um, or no, in fact, on radio. Sorry, I used to listen to old reruns of this program called Round the Horn, which was a sort of comedy program from nineteen sixties and I think early seventies, um, which was sort of the main how most people I think in the UK like came to discover and hear about Polari uh, because of two characters on it who used to use the language between each other who were who were these two gay men okay cool. uh, so Polari uh, was a cant language uh, that was used between gay men in 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 the UK in England between I think basically the middle of the Victorian era until I think people spoke it quite regularly up until the sort of 1960s and 70s Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's um, it, it's developed out of like a whole bunch of different languages, uh, including um, uh, like a sort of thief's cant, like a slang amongst thieves, like a ro- like forms of Romany language that are existing, like traveller language in the UK, um, sailor slang, Cockney rhyming slang, a whole bunch of different things, back talk, all sorts of sort of mm-hmm. aspects. And yeah, basically, it's, it's a language for um, that gay men use to communicate with each other, sort of partly to find each other you know to dropping a few words in and seeing if people respond to it in a, in a sort of way that's hidden or be hidden to straight people and also right. communicating like between each other in the company of straight people um and yeah it's this sort of strange sort of latinate romance language which is um which was which is like fun you know it's like really like catty there's like a lot of good words in it um, <laughs> for talking about you know like how hot different guys are whether they're gay whether they're uh, you know, tops or bottoms, or uh, and talking about the police as well, and giving warnings and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's really, wow. it's really interesting. And it was, it was really big until yeah, I guess the nineteen fifties and sixties, and then I guess sort of post um, part, the partial decriminalization of homosexuality, and then the emergence of um, I guess it sort of became a bit tacky, I guess, and people stopped using it. Um, but it, but it's still really popular. Yeah, uh, between uh, it was um, on Round the Horn, it was Kenneth Williams uh, and. I forget the other guy. Um, and there were these sort of two camp guys who, who you know, talked about it. Um, and so that, that was the sort of thing where they were sort of coded as gay and where it was still illegal. Uh, and it mm-hmm. sort of slipped into like really mainstream. I mean, this was like a huge radio program. There's a good story about it, actually. The guy who wrote it, um, uh, Kenneth Horn, I think it was called. He, uh, that, that he sort of, they, they managed to slip this past this commissioner of the BBC who was extremely conservative and blah, blah, blah. And, um, he thought he'd done it for sort of five years and then met this guy in the corridor once. And he sort of said, uh, how much he loved having these two gay guys on it. <laughs> and they, they thought they'd slipped it past. But I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause it, it, I remember reading about it, which is funny. Cause obviously this makes so much sense with Colin who studied puppetry. Yeah. Um, the uh, there's a lot of Polari in Punch and Judy shows. Allegedly, yeah, right. Yeah, which is really cool. And it's like a theatrical language as well. Obviously, like it's like very sort of like around the, the sort of Soho and the theatre districts in London, and then around um, the sort of uh, seaside resorts is where where it was like most popular. I love it. Yeah, yeah. No more. Yeah, more constructed constructed languages. I've definitely. Yeah, I've got. I, I would love to do. I would love to do something. There's an amazing actually. Like, well, Ursula Le Guin came up with her own language as well, right? Ursula Le Guin did. There was um the French progressive rock band Magma. Yeah. Um, they made a bunch of different records um using their own language. There's an incredible constructed language subreddit or Reddit that's just like. I mean, it's one of, it's one of those like gold mines. I, I went on there actually, cause you know, for a period of time, I mean, related to, uh, 
uh, religious singing, we'd obviously done a lot of work with Sacred Harp and Sacred Harp obviously uh, created its own notation in terms of shape notes. And I'm just like, personally, I was just kind of fell in love with the characters. It's this very beautiful thing. I mean, and for, for those who don't know that, you know, the whole shape note idea was basically attempting pro- to produce musical notation for the illiterate. Um, mm. So it's, it's musical notation basically uh, that's intended to, you know, uh, uh, yeah, intended for anybody to be able to pick up really, really quickly. Um, and in a sense, I mean, this is also like, I think, uh, I think both in your work and also uh, uh, Hildegard's work, you, you kind of get this impression that, you know, there's this kind of science fiction dimension um, both in terms of channeling and like imagining new worlds and like somehow like creating your own language is this very like very symbolic act in order to like birth a new world or a fork in the mm-hmm. fork in the universe you know um but but i think sacred harp also fits into that and yeah when when you look at these you look at these kind of you look at these symbols and you're like holy shit like this is like the most futuristic thing ever to basically like you know, rip apart the history of, of, of music notation and just produce these new symbols that allow for anybody to pick it up. Um, but yeah, but there's an amazing subreddit of just the most intense people creating their own languages and critiquing them, um, which is really, really worth it. And like, I, I just, yeah, every single one, I'm like, I just want, I just want to print them all on the wall and like, have, and just look at them. If we go back into lockdown, we know what Matt's going to be doing. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing this for a while, actually. I mean, to, to be honest, it's, it's more an aesthetic exercise because they kind of just, they, they almost look like, um, you know, kind of like a, 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 a graphic scores or something mm-hmm. like that. It's just this very beautiful, these beautiful artworks actually that, yeah, a few very strange people seem to dedicate a lot of time to. Um, and speaking about strange people dedicating a lot of time to something, right? So this is probably a good time to segue over to uh, your your podcast. Um, so, wait, oh, am I a strange person in this? Yeah, you are. Sorry, <laughs> it's a it's a strange pursuit. Um, uh, uh, so so your your podcast, um, bad gays, is like one of my favorite things to listen to. I think it it it, it feels like. Um, it's it's an advanced concept to me um would you mind I- explaining just in in short short form like what the f- what the what the goal or like what the kind of the um yeah what the, what the podcast is and like where it came from the genesis story the genesis exactly yeah um like i'm a i'm like a really um unexperimental person in a lot of ways like i think it was from going to like art school and seeing like some aspects of experimentalism like i'm one of these people who thinks that like it's actually a lot harder to 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 do something quite conservative very well yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i wanted to make a podcast which i mean the podcast has like the most basic possible sort of format or structure um which i think is actually in some ways like well it can be quite hard to write because you, you you know everyone knows what it's supposed to sound like and look like and they've got it you've got to get it right the first time um but also it's like the, the, I, I want to communicate something like very clearly uh, so so to go back to the beginning the format is me and um ben ben miller who he's a he's a proper historian uh yeah. <laughs> we we sit down in each episode one of us basically uh tells the life story of uh a queer person in history um to the other and then we discuss it discuss their life and the idea is that basically within like a lot of popular gay media, like not, not so much within academia, I think, but within popular gay media, like a lot of the discussion around gay history is about heroes. Um, yep. For good reason, you know, like rediscovering 
lives that had been erased or, or aspects of lives that had been erased and to find for people who were like especially in the sort of 50s 60s 70s sort of struggling to come out and come to terms with things the fact that like there were interesting admirable people who lived full lives influential lives who changed things who were brave etc cetera, etc cetera, who you know that you could be a gay man this, this is where it came from um or a lesbian without being a victim but as a result like it's quite quite a flat telling of gay history and so we wanted to produce a gay history program where we looked at like terrible people basically um, <laughs> so each episode yeah we talk we talk about them we talk about their their life you know what what made them terrible and then we talk about their sexuality and what evidence there is for that and then also how that interacted and affected specifically with their badness um and uh, once you get into it like it's super rich you know like the first openly gay politician in the world was a Nazi. Crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so why could he be? Why, why, why could he be openly gay and a Nazi? Like the reason, like they're they're specifically linked, you know. Like his form of his sexuality was was based around a masculinism that uh, that that allowed him, you know, that 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 actually valorized his fascism. He was more he right. was more of a Nazi because he was because he only slept yeah. with men. And that's yeah. something that's like mm. obviously undiscussed in a sort of more contemporary liberal understanding of sexual mm-hmm. politics. But but actually, mm-hmm. like these were as important, some ways more influential aspects of gay identity in the early twentieth century. So you get into these big discussions, and then like a big thing, especially if we deal with people before the sort of twentieth century, is can you call people gay? Can you call people queer? Can you call people homosexual before these terms existed? So yeah, then we get into like a wider discussion around these things. Um, and we approach it quite uh, liberally and quite quite a, quite a broad brush approach, you know. Like, like we we'll call them gay if they had sex with their own gender. I, I mean, I think it, I think it's wonderful for exactly that reason because, in a sense, one thing that I I I mean, first off, it's just like an incredibly entertaining listen because it's the again this kind of combination of like a very kind of rigorous historical um, overview with it's also just very fun. You know, it has like a. a I, we actually saw we saw Ben uh, Ben recently, and we're talking about like horrible histories. You know, this kind of like yeah, yeah. There's, there's this awesome kind of like just pleasure of of listening to you know listening to dis- listening to stories of despicable people. Um, but 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 also to kind of agree with you that you know it feels like while on on the one hand it's as you said it's completely understandable given the given the context and and you know the historical pers- historical and, and contemporary persecution um, that people are, are prone to to always look for hero figures there's also there, there's also a danger sometimes it feels of of kind of infantilizing people right by by only pointing to by only pointing to the virtuous right and it seems that in order to 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 be fully kind of to be fully honest and and respectful of 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 people and 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 a diversity of different people who you know didn't necessarily choose their sexuality or whatnot um to allow for people to own their villains, you know, to, to have that be part of the discourse. And, and, and it, it just, it feels, it feels very, it feels very advanced uh, to approach it like that because often, oftentimes it can, it can feel like, uh, it can feel like things are, um, uh, things, things are oversimplified. And like, particularly when you look at, for example, like one of my favorite episodes was, was on um, Ronnie Cray, who, you know, for those who like are not from the UK, maybe that name doesn't really ring true, but He's kind of this figure as like a you know a very violent, aggressive gangster in UK history. Um, you know, I had no idea. Um, and it's funny because you've got this this character who you know was was 
you know, the Cray brothers, were they twins? Uh, yeah, they were twins, remember. yeah. They, they were twins, but, 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 you know, growing up like English, I knew, I knew about these characters and this is a whole aspect of that history that like had never been shown to me, you know, which does of course complicate, complicate his personal narrative um, in, in, in really interesting ways. I don't know. I, I, I just, it, it feels, yeah, it feels like a very, um, it's like a really, it's a really fun, but also like, just like incredibly interesting topic. Yeah, I mean, for example, he's a really good example, actually, in terms of the way his sexuality and his sort of mythos tied together and then are split apart. Because yeah, like he's a he's a hard man and he's like he's he's a sort of a folk hero for like a certain type of English masculinity, right? Yeah, like totally. Heterosexual masculinity, especially. Um, and yet the reason, like, we actually know quite a lot about his sex life and it, it illuminates quite a lot about like the world that he was living in at the time. And we know about it because he was openly gay, pretty much. And the reason he was openly gay is no one's going to criticize him. Like if you, if you, yeah, totally. if you're known as somebody who will kill anyone at the slightest insult, he says it quite. I, he said it himself quite explicitly that no one's going to call him a puff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is so. So then, yeah, like you, you do learn all these like fascinating things about him. And then that his like concept of his own homosexuality is based around like this form of English uh, colonial masculinism. You know, he says that he says quite openly, like, like she says, I'm not a puff, I'm a homosexual, like Gordon of Khartoum, yep. who was a sort of Victorian a colonial adventurer, who was also yep. um, extremely, <laughs> extremely violent. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, and, and also, I think it's quite interesting because uh, it sheds a lot of light on contemporary discussions within like gay male community, especially, but I guess within the LGBTQ community, what more widely, like, wh- why even amongst let's say within the community of people who identify as lgbtq like aspects around like whiteness and and cis men and and bodies and stuff like they make more sense when you start to look at gay history not as this series of like just libertarian libertary struggles from the sort of early 20th century and then the 1960s and coming out and you know but you say like oh actually this identity is constructed out of colonialism uh that is part of this same sort of project of a taxonomical understanding of the world and sustained itself and came to understand itself through in a lot of ways a valorization of extreme masculinity um mm-hmm. deep misogyny you know like a, a body horror around women which still continues deeply as part of the culture i suppose so so a lot of those contemporary debates make more sense when you actually read them through uh through the creation of this identity and then you accept actually like the both the you know, that the struggle also emerges out of the fact that this identity was created as a way to understand, categorize, oppress, criminalize, uh, pathologize same sex, same sex behavior within that, within an identity. And then that's the fundamental conundrum of being gay is that you've chosen to, to build an identity upon, uh, a framework that was created to suppress the identity or to suppress the behavior. Sorry. Um, and then the other thing about it, I think, in, in the, con- the context of like a lot of cultural production today, is that if you start from the outset with the basis of accepting that this person is bad, it removes a lot of the problems in discussing heroes or discussing historical figures through a heroic lens because you've already mm-hmm. accepted. If you start off by saying, okay, this person was a real piece of shit, you can then find <laughs> interesting, nice things or, or, or things about them that are redemptive. And, and, and you don't mm-hmm. have to have the same discussion around can this person who whose art I love or whose music I love, can we understand that 
how how do we deal with that when we find out that actually like he was a piece of shit to his lovers or whatever yeah. mm-hmm. if you start yeah. off on the, the basis that he's a piece of shit you can get into a, i think a lot more depth around your discussions of like the contradictions of of human characters especially people who are living in a society that like represses some fundamental aspect of their desire i find this i find the framing super fascinating and really useful i really enjoyed the podcast and i also think it's really interesting in yeah in light of the hildegard story because she's kind of been subject to multiple kind of revivals when i was researching for this episode a little bit i found an article on jstor i think um i can't remember what publication but they were talking about the kind of marketing involved with each revival that came along and how revivals you know they're inherently kind of wrapped up with whoever the community is that's reviving said historical figure and so they'll kind of like highlight aspects of that person's life to serve whatever their purposes are so Mm -hmm. apparently in the 90s she was really popular with like the new age movement and so like certain aspects of her um research or her yeah career were highlighted as part of that movement um she even had an article in the face magazine which is kind of hildegard yeah hildegard which is like so (laughs) crazy (laughs) um but maybe like in in um kind of honor of your uh the your kind of framing for your podcast maybe we could talk about some of the shitty parts of hildegard as well (laughs) like i came across this one um statement by a historian that said that she was a strong supporter of class division you're listening to the free version of this podcast if you would like to hear the full version and support this series please visit patreon.com interdependence this podcast is ad free and only possible through patron support thank you (laughs) 